is toward them. That they're not some special class of especially nasty sinner. It might help them to know that Jesus' harshest words in scripture were not for the sexually immoral, but for the religiously self-righteous who loved condemning the sinner and exalting themselves instead of seeking the sinner's repentance and restoration to God. So they need our compassion. Lastly, they need our courage. Romans 1.16 proclaims, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When we looked at that passage many moons ago now, I brought to you the context, which was there were many factors calling Paul to be ashamed of Christ. There were many outward forces at work trying to get him to be ashamed of who Jesus is and to be ashamed of this message that there was power in this proclamation of this story that God had become man and laid his life down and risen from the dead to save all people. And that he was calling all these people and all these cities went to, to repent of their idols and to turn to God for salvation and forgiveness. And there was so much spiritual darkness coming against him, seeking to make him, not just put him in prison, not just put him in chains, but to to cover all that with shame on him, to make him feel ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. And so he says in the middle of this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I know it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He had experienced that personally and he had seen it. He had seen that power of the gospel come into community after community, family after family, lost person, hopeless person after hopeless person and just destroy hopelessness and bring reconciliation to God again and again and again. And he'd watched these lives changed miraculously. And so he said, I'm not gonna be ashamed of this gospel. It's real. God really works through it. And so our children, our brothers and sisters who struggle with these issues, we ourselves who may struggle with these issues, we need to come alongside them and stand strong for the gospel and not be ashamed of it. The truth that Jesus Christ saves sinners and changes them, that he commands repentance and faith, but that he gives repentance and faith for those who come to him for it. We need to boast in our savior that he really does forgive us by his blood of all of our sins. And he really does give us new hearts by his spirit that make it possible for us to follow him. That he will do that with us as we come to him for that. They need to know that Jesus will walk with them every step of the way as they seek to follow him and they will seek to follow him just like us imperfectly good days and bad days and he will not leave them our loved ones need us to be willing to stay in this place they need a savior for their sins we need to tell them that and that in Jesus they have one they need to see us stand there month after month, year after year, and not shift with the winds of the world. They need to see in our lives 
that Jesus really is worth living for, that, that he's worth the daily offering of our lives. They need to see us giving ourselves each day to him, saying, Lord, today I want to take up my cross and follow you. Fill me with power to be able to do that. They need to see that we're changing into something that we could never be on our own, that God's actually working anger out of our lives. We struggle with it, but he's working on it that he's working laziness out of our lives, that we struggle with it, but he's working on it and they see us changing. That will give them confidence that Jesus is real and that he will help them. They need us to be willing if necessary in order to love them, to have a long, as gentle as we can, as peaceful as we can, to have a long disagreement with them about these things. They need to see that we do not want the relationship to end, but that we're also not willing to compromise our Lord and his truth. They need to see that in our hearts, we, we believe that if we call good and beautiful what God says only keeps us from his kingdom, that we're not loving them. They need to understand that from our perspective, we don't want to seek only temporary peace with them and trade that for their spiritual blindness and destruction. So those are the things I think that we need more than anything else. We need clarity, we need compassion, and we need courage. And if it sounds like those things would be the same things we need with our community and society, I, I think they are, they're transferable. But as I've thought about this issue, I don't know if you guys go through this, but, but I can find myself with this sense that I need to study and study and study and analyze and analyze and read and read and read. And, and, and even then, I can only trust the right approach about all these things to Christian philosophers and counselors that it's just, it's just too much for me. And listen, I do believe there is much good in reading and I think I've learned a lot and I know where to go when I start to get confused and shaky. I think it's important to have that. As I've read those things and engaged with those things, it, it, to a large degree, it's been confirmatory to me that, that what I need most of all is what I started with. I, I need clarity of God's word. I need the deep compassion of Christ's heart and I need the courage of the Holy Spirit to stand with the gospel and to keep holding on to these things for days and weeks and months and years to love my loved ones faithfully with these three things. And then you know what? We have to leave the convicting, the saving, the changing to the only one who can convict and save and change, Jesus. He's the only one who can do it for me. Am I gonna be able to through my forceful control and my, my clamoring, my ignoring? I can't save, I can't convict, I can't change. What I can do is take my five loaves and my three fishes and offer them to him and watch as he, in his time, multiplies them and makes them effective. So as you think about these three things, clarity on what God's word teaches, 
compassion for those caught up or tempted, courage to stand with the truth as you seek relationship? Is there one that you could put your finger on and say, I I need help with this the most? For those of us who are older, it, it might be compassion. For those of us who are younger, it might be clarity. In any regard, I want to appeal to you again as I close this section. Please, let me try to help you with any of these things. It's my job. It's why I (laughs) work here at this church to help you with these things. So, and now kind of the, the second question, loose end. I want to try to help us with this question. What in the world is happening? Like, wh- what is going on? And again, if you're younger, like my daughter is or my kids are, you don't really notice that things are any different. You kind of grew up in the air of all, all of what's happening in our country. If you're older like me, you're like, whoa, what? It was just like this and now it's like this. How did we move from Barack Obama opposing same-sex marriage, the Democratic president in 2008 as he came into office? How did we move from, in 2012, transgenderism defined as a mental disorder by the American Psychological Association in 2012? How did we move from that to today where a person's moral goodwill is under suspicion if they assert that a man cannot give birth? How did we move from where elementary school children in Maryland are now being asked, as my kids have been, what gender they would like to be choose to be called? With no questions to their parents about that. How do we move to where government education and business institutions are requiring employees to affirm fluidity of gender or face punitive consequences? How do we move to the place where in our own state, this state, listen, it is now illegal through Republicans, uh, governors signing into law, Larry Hogan, it's now illegal for anyone in professional counseling to try to help someone who, an adult who voluntarily wants to change from a same-sex orientation to a heterosexual orientation. It's illegal for a counselor to try to help them with that. You can't. So we're, we're living in a culture where in the span of just several decades, the biblical sexual ethic has moved from a place of general admiration. It used to be admired when my parents were young to a place where it was kind of considered unrealistic and prudish, but sentimentally nice. Maybe we're thinking of the 60s and 70s and 80s to today where the biblical sexual ethic is considered hateful and immoral It's considered immoral by large swaths of mainstream culture. How do we get here? And where are we going? That question just just kind of nags at me, you know, and and I think for for many of us, maybe it nags at us. Now, I I could, like, go the academic route, and and I could try to walk you through uh, stages in the development of Western thought like from the enlightenment of the 17th century, which challenged religious authority to the 18th and 19th centuries of Charles Darwin, who, um, who challenged the need for a creator at all 
to Nietzsche, who challenged the very concept of any morality at all. Like, who are we to say there's good and evil at all? To Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, who disdained God as a, a crutch for oppression from the elite, or in Freud's case, as a fantasy for infantile humanity. I could trace the timing and the development of this sort of thought chain leading to an increasing dismissal of biblical authority in the West and seeing it replace itself with the authority of self. We could look at technological advancements of birth control in the 60s and how that opened up a new world for people in terms of sexual promiscuity. But behind these developments, there's much deeper forces at work driving them. There's spiritual realities that we can't see with our eyes, battles in heavenly places. We see this dynamic that we spent a long time in in Romans 1, where in Romans 1, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, we see this dynamic where man chooses for God not to be his God, but decides that he wants to be his own God. And that when man rejects God and takes on himself the authority that belongs to God, Romans 1 tells us that God in his judicial judgment begins to hand man over to his own, to man's own disordered and destructive desires. God basically says in judgment, you don't want me. You want to go your own way. Then I won't keep you from doing that any longer. I will, in judgment, I will let you go your own way. And this handing over includes the corruption of society at every level. If God is the source of goodness, if he's the source of wisdom and sanity and love and peace, then when human culture rejects God, how can that culture expect to keep goodness, wisdom, sanity, love, and peace? God in his judgment won't let it. I've used this analogy before. You have a little, you know, two little boys are playing together and this one boy comes over and brings all his awesome Legos and Hot Wheels cars and the other boy who lives in the home, they get in a fight and he says, get out of my house. And the little boy who visited is visiting, it says, okay. And he picks up his Legos and his Hot Wheels and he leaves the house. And the, the boy's like, well, I didn't want to lose all that stuff. I just wanted you to go. And that's kind of a crude metaphor for what's happening in Romans 1. When we want to kick God and his authority out of our hearts and our homes and our civilizations, we, we don't want sexual confusion and divorce and addictions. But God's like, you can't kick me out of your house and keep my toys. And in, in, in God's case, his toys are sanity, social order, peace, wisdom, goodwill. And so if you kick me out, little by little, you're going to lose those things. And so it's possible that something like this may be happening in America right now. In rejecting God, we may be being handed over to an increasing loss of sanity 
and given over in judgment to think and live in ways that are more and more full of darkness and confusion and destruction. But listen, what would we do if that were true? We'd want to be really careful about what we did with that idea. For instance, we would want to be really careful about having a self-righteous attitude of, aha, look what you did. Look what's happening to you, culture. Our Lord is the one who warned, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. We might feel that this issue, sexual immorality, is the issue. It's the metric we should look at to gauge how bad things are and how angry God is. And look, this must be the end. Look at all the sexual disorder and perversion. But wouldn't it be like God to see things really differently? I grew up in the 80s. In the 80s, there was a movie called Wall Street and it contained this famous slogan. Anybody know it? Just shout it out. Greed is good. Greed is good. And people love that phrase. They loved it. It was fun. It was funny. It was freeing. It was strong. It was America. Greed is good. Something God hates, the idolatry of money, the love of money, has largely been embraced in America for a very long time. Remember Donald Trump as he was running for president? That was one of his big boasts. I'm very rich. I'm very, very rich. It's attractive to us. How much do we consider how the evil of greed and the lust for money shows how hard our hearts are before God in this nation as a culture? Might it be that God sees our greed as a much bigger problem than our sexual sins? I don't see perfectly as he sees. And so I want to be careful to put one cultural sin above another and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. Another dynamic is that God is very patient and very merciful. And in his grace, even at times, he restrains evils that have been running rampant in a culture. When my namesake, my great-grandfather, Albert W. Turner I, was born in 1868, the United States had just made it illegal. Had just made it illegal in my great-grandfather's life for people to be owned. For centuries before in the West, it was perfectly acceptable to millions of people to kidnap a man by force from his homeland, separate him from his wife and his children and own him like you might own a a donkey. I don't know that many conservative Bible-believing churches in those days were preaching against the evil of man-stealing. I know it wasn't enough. Charles Spurgeon is an English pastor that we quote here probably more than any other English pastor in the 1800s, brilliant guy. He grieved 
the American acceptance of man-stealing. It's a horrible sin. There were famous preachers in America that were beloved by the American church that Spurgeon would never let in his church. They believed all the things that are in our statement of faith. And Spurgeon would have said, you hypocrite, you man-stealer. I cannot call you a brother until you leave that sin. And today, by God's grace, slavery is outlawed. Many of God's people fought for that. There have been strides made in racial equality. I know that it's a contentious issue today. But I hope we could all agree it is not where it was. And that's God's grace on a culture. In our age, the murder of the unborn has been considered the right of health care. But last year, we saw a miracle at the Supreme Court where abortion was rejected as a constitutional right. So the Lord is able to take a decaying culture and he's able to pour grace into it and restore it. He is patient and merciful. So we must be too. And we must be very careful to point the finger and say, oh, that's so much worse than me. Don't we just know... (laughs) If you spend just a few short weeks in the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus is just not going to countenance that. A phrase I love, it's very colloquially sounding, but it's true. It's not from a verse, but the principle is absolutely true. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. God will ensure that the gospel will prevail even in the worst of times. And only he knows what the worst of times really are. I don't know, but that God looks at 1830 and says that was much worse than 2023. I don't know, but I'm going to be careful. But whatever it is, wherever we are on the trajectory of revival or leading up to uh, another great awakening, or maybe we're leading up to 2 Thessalonians 2 and the great apostasy right before the man of lawlessness is revealed. We'll talk about that more in the coming days as we move into Romans 2 and the day of the Lord and his return. But we know that Jesus is going to be faithful. Even in the worst of times, we will see his grace at work. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of the time leading up to his coming. And he says there's going to be a pervasive hardness of heart that's going to overtake humanity, cultures, and civilizations. He says, because of lawlessness, the love of many will go cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And listen to his promise. This gospel of the kingdom, in the middle of that lawlessness, in the middle of that coldness over hearts, he says, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Even in the midst of this great lawlessness and hardness, 
coming upon the world in the, the very last days before Jesus returned. The gospel is carried. It is believed. It is living in the hearts of God's people. They are making it across borders into hard places and they are spreading the word of God. So we have hope from the Lord that whatever is happening in our culture, God is not going to take his hands off the wheel. He is sovereign over our country and our culture. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will, much less the United States. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And that includes the micro promises from those very big promises that are so important to us that he will complete the work he started in you, brothers and sisters. That he knows how to keep you in him. He knows that temptations are too great for you. He knows that trials could destroy you. He knows that you could leave him because of persecution or ignore him because of riches and beauty of this world. He knows all that. And yet he says, I will complete the work I started in you until the day I return. So what's our job in, in all this? Like, where are we confusion? And I haven't really answered the question of where we are too much. Because I don't know exactly. But I do know this, that, that in the midst of great wickedness and confusion in Jerusalem, even as it was headed towards God's discipline, God made this appeal in Jeremiah 6 to the people. He says this, This is what Yahweh says. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Then walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. All this craziness, confusion, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Then walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. There's a good way. There's an ancient path. In a world where every day there's a new confusion, a new scandal, a new controversy, Jesus says, hey, stay on the old paths. (laughs) They're, They're old. They're tried, they're true, they're reliable. And brothers and sisters, they're not complicated. Let us stay devoted to his gospel. Keep reminding ourselves of his blood for our sins, of his mercy for our transgressions. Let's be ready to share it, even asking for help to suffer for it. Let's hold on to his gospel. Let's stay in his word. Let the word of God dwell in us richly, Paul says in Colossians 3. It's an ancient word, not complicated. Spend time in his word. Don't ignore it. Stay in prayer. Every day, be talking to your father. Be talking to God, appealing to him. Stay close to your church, to one another. Let us sing together and listen to his truth together and take his supper together. 
Not fancy, not complicated. It's an ancient path. Let's be devoted to one another specifically. Really know each other, love each other, help each other, forgive each other, confess our sins to each other, comfort each other, teach each other. Not complicated, but it's an ancient path. Let us care for the needy in our midst. You find out there's a need among us, let's help with that. Let's be aware of the needy in our communities, in our world, the poor around us that we can help. It's not complicated. It's an ancient path. And by faith, let's do these things depending on him for his glory, depending on him for the strength to do it. We can't do these things without his strength. So by faith, we ask. By faith, we trust and we depend on him moment by moment to help us do these things. These are the ancient paths where God says we'll find rest for our souls no matter what happens in our culture. So, as I said, um, this is my attempt to kind of close the loose ends. I really think I have today for my mind, but you may continue to have questions and I am just at your service. It is my deep desire to help you with these issues and I know they're difficult. I know that um, the ancient paths may not be complicated, but some of the questions you guys are facing are complicated to you. So please talk to me. I will do my best to be compassionate and patient and uh, by God's grace, maybe be resourceful for you. Let me pray for us.